Good morning. This morning, I'm thankful for batteries that are put in the right way. Man, it is, it is good to be with you this morning, and it is a special joy and privilege to open God's Word on this day with you, to look forward to and to anticipate this week of Thanksgiving. If you have your Bibles, please open to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, this beautiful psalm, this powerful portion of God's Word will serve as something of a high-level blueprint and outline for our time together this morning. But before we do anything else, before we open and read God's Word together, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, asking for His help as we study His precious truth this morning. Let us pray. Father, how we love the truth that we have already sung this morning, that You are faithful forever. You are perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. We delight to be your children. And we long to offer to you our praise, our worship, and our thanksgiving. And yet, Father, we do recognize that we so often fail in this. We are sadly often not a thankful people. We are tempted to give voice to our complaints to give voice to our grumblings. And so, Father, we ask that even now, as we study and read the verses before us, we ask that Your Spirit would do His wonderful work of transforming us, of working in each heart and mind, so that we would truly be a thankful people, not one time a year, but every day and every week and every month that we would recognize your goodness, your provision, your grace, your sovereignty in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. Churches are like hospitals. Churches are like hospitals. The church is like a hospital. You've probably heard that before, comparing or likening the church to a hospital. And I think that we must admit that that imagery, that metaphor of a church being like a hospital does break down at some points. There are some qualities about a hospital and some qualities about a church that are simply not similar. And yet... Contained within this comparison is a great deal of truth. Churches are like hospitals, means sick people are welcome. Sick people are welcome. Healthy people don't like to go, typically, and hang out at hospitals. They are places, they are locations appropriate to sick people, people who are not well. And that is certainly true of every church this side of heaven. But having said that, No hospital in the world, at least no good hospital, would allow you to come in sick, to come in all messed up, and encourage you to stay that way. And encourage you to stay just the way you are. No, the job of a hospital is to help identify the problem with you, to locate the source or the cause of your sickness, the cause of your illness, to then prescribe a plan for healing and then to work to that end, whether it be physical therapy or or medicine or whether it be surgery. What hospitals don't allow you to do is to come in and refuse treatment of every kind 
and let you just stay there the way you are. No, their job is to see you improve, to see you make progress in your state of health and strength. And so here at Harbor Shores Church this morning, our message to you is simple. We are so glad you're here, but we don't want you to stay the way you are. Amen. In fact, turn turn to the person on your left and say, we're so glad you're here. Do it, do it. And then turn to the other person on your right and say, but we don't want you to stay the way you are. We, we don't. We don't want you to stay the way you are. Paul said it this way in, in Colossians 1. As Paul talked about and described his heart, his passion, his focus for his ministry. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, referring to Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present Everyone mature in Christ. That was Paul's focus for his ministry, the goal of his ministry. He wanted to see everyone made mature in Christ. And then he says this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. We want to grow. We want to change. We want to see one another made mature in Christ. And yet, as Paul reminds us here, this can only happen through the grace of God, through the power of God at work in his people. Our dear brother Rob Hannes reminded us of this truth last week. It is the Holy Spirit who must do his work, who must accomplish his good will through his word to make us like Christ. One time, when I was eavesdropping on a conversation between two pastors, now mind you, I think they knew I was there, so I don't know if it technically qualifies as eavesdropping, but I was eavesdropping on a conversation between these two dear brothers, and I heard one pastor say to the other pastor, quote, There are some issues so essential to the ongoing development and health of the Christian life that it is our God-given duty as pastors to regularly speak to them again and again. There are some issues so essential to the ongoing development and health of the Christian life that it is our God-given duty as pastors to regularly speak to them again and again. And brothers and sisters, the subject to which I draw your attention to this morning is one such issue. Please note it on your outline. We are to be a thankful people. And to ignore this reality is perilous to our spiritual health. It is dangerous. It is dangerous to allow a complaining and murmuring heart to go on unchecked. We must repent. We must carefully watch over our hearts and our minds in regards to this matter. Now, before we read Psalm 107 in its entirety, there are a few things that I want to draw your attention to. Some recurring themes that occur again and again throughout the psalm. First, please notice how the entire psalm ends. If you're there in your Bibles, look at Psalm 107, verse 43. Psalm 107, 43 says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist here challenges us, if you want to be wise, you need to consider, you need to heed what is written here. 
You need to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. You need to remember again how God has loved you, how he has rescued you, that you might be moved to gratitude and thanksgiving. That's the first thing I want you to see is just how this whole psalm wraps up the conclusion that we are driving to. Secondly, you'll notice that throughout this psalm, there is a pattern of seemingly bad and sinful decisions that are made. And then there is repentance. There is repentance. And then growing out of that repentance, the Lord responds in great deliverance and grace and he rescues his people. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 13, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 19, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 28, one more time. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. If we don't learn anything from this psalm, we ought to learn that our God is a delivering God. Our God is a gracious, a compassionate, a kind God who responds in deliverance to his people. This psalm should echo in our hearts and in our minds that that precious truth that we read in Hebrews 4.16, which says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And yet, have you noticed how in your time of need, in my time of need, instead of running to the Lord, we're tempted to run away? From the Lord, thinking that we we cannot go to the Lord, we cannot go to him because we've blown it, because we have truly made a mess of things. But it is in those moments that we must look again to the cross. It is in those moments when we are in desperate need that we must run to the cross, that we must go to the throne of grace to find mercy, to help in time of need. We must draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus has purchased our right to do so. We never come before God bringing our requests based upon our own righteousness, our own goodness, but we do so because of the merit, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. This psalm reminds us of that truth. Thirdly, then, I want you to notice before we read this psalm, the instructions that the psalmist gives to each of these groups who experience the deliverance of the Lord. Look at verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 15. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 21. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Now, you are sensible people, and you are, by sure, picking up what the psalmist is laying down. That here he is teaching us, he is helping us see that the only right response, the only proper response to the goodness of God, to the deliverance of God, is thanksgiving, is gratitude unto the Lord. So let's now read the psalm in its entirety, and then we'll get to work. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the ways of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So reads the words of the living God. 
from this psalm we see that thanksgiving is indeed a comprehensive command. It is commanded, and we will trace that throughout Scripture in just a moment. Not only is it a comprehensive command, it is also a continual challenge. Uh, We must continually be exhorted to give thanks unto the Lord, and we'll talk about why that is. And then lastly, we see that thanksgiving is a contagious comfort. It is a tremendous blessing to us and to those around us when we rightly respond to God in thanksgiving. So firstly, we see that Scripture teaches us that thanksgiving is a comprehensive command. There will be a number of verses that are going to be on the screens behind me. We're going to work through these quickly, but I want to just help identify that throughout the totality of Scripture, we see that we are again and again reminded and challenged to be a thankful people. First and foremost, I would draw your attention to the example of Jesus himself. Did you know that Jesus, while he was on this earth, was a thankful person and often offered up thanksgiving to God the Father? In Matthew eleven twenty-five to 26, we read these verses. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Here Jesus give, gives thanksgiving and praise to God the Father for his wondrous, gracious, sovereign will in revealing his plan of salvation to those that are so often neglected and despised in the eyes of the world. Over in John chapter 6, we see that Jesus gives thanks again. In John six eleven, we read that Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Here, Jesus thanks the Father for his provision of these loaves, of these fishes that Jesus is about to multiply. In Matthew chapter 26, On the night that Jesus would be betrayed and arrested, as Jesus would celebrate Passover with the disciples in in the upper room, again, we find Jesus giving thanks. In Matthew 26, 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here Christ is giving thanks, even as he contemplates his soon coming death on the cross, his atoning work, knowing that it will result in the salvation and in the forgiveness of his people. And of course, it's not only the Lord Jesus Christ that we see giving thanks in the New Testament. We see that that thanksgiving and gratitude was a continual theme that the Apostle Paul would emphasize again and again in Philippians 1, 3 to 4. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Paul says something very similar to the Colossians in 1.3. Colossians 1.3, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we 
pray for you. Paul was continually thankful for those that served alongside him in the ministry. And he remembered them in his prayers, giving thanks and and praise to God for them and for their partnership in the ministry. We've already considered one psalm this morning, but throughout the psalms, we see that thanksgiving is to be a continual theme. In Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist writes, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Here we are commanded to to give thanks to his holy name. As we think about what that means, we're reminded of the fact that we are to praise God, to rejoice in God, to thank God simply for who he is. As the psalmist talks about the name of God, he's talking about all that God is, his character, his nature, his works, what he has decreed to do. And the psalmist says we ought to give thanks for his holy name, for all that God is. Psalm 118 verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. God's love is an eternal, never-ending kind of love. And the psalmist reminds us and calls us to give thanks to God for his love. As we look at the New Testament, again, we see that the church is continually instructed, continually commanded to give thanks and praise unto God. And, and, and most often this praise and, th- and this thanksgiving finds its root, finds its foundation in the work and in the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 to 57, Paul writes, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes again, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, we maybe don't often think to give thanks for this, but here Paul says we should give thanks because we have been entrusted with the glorious privilege and responsibility of representing Christ wherever we go. When you go to work, you go to work as a representative for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go to school, you don't just go to school. You go to school to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go on vacation, You're not really on vacation. You're there to represent the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you are. We are to be the fragrance of Christ wherever God might take us. And Paul says we should praise God for this. We should thank him for that joy and for that privilege. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul simply writes, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It is inexpressible. We can never reach the end of our thanksgiving for God. This is why, by the way, there's more than just one song that we sing of thanksgiving to God. I mean, have you noticed that there are multiple songs that we sing? There are hundreds, perhaps thousands of songs that have been written over the, over the centuries, over the thousands of years, expressing our thankfulness to God. Why? Because it is truly an inexpressible gift. How do you rightly summarize the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Who has ever loved you like that? Who has ever left the glories of heaven to humble himself, to become a man, 
and then to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, enduring God's wrath for your sin against himself. Who has ever loved you like that? It is it is an indescribable gift. It is an inexpressible gift. And so, yes, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And for all of eternity, we will sing and magnify him for this gift. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, we see that in our times of corporate worship, we ought always to be singing and giving thanks. It says, for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In all things, we are giving thanks to the Father, submitting to one another, delighting in our adoption, in our, in our being brought together into the family of God. Over in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, it perhaps states it so succinctly and so well. Simply put, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That in all circumstances, we would be giving thanks unto God. This is God's desired will for our lives. We see in Revelation chapter 4, that this theme of thanksgiving will never end. In Revelation 4, 9, it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. This theme of praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving will never end, will continue Forever. Lastly, Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Not just a casual word and a comment of thanksgiving here and there, but that it would abound, that it would be an abundance in our lives as we, as we worship God, as we contemplate, as we adore Him for all that we have been given in Christ. This is a comprehensive command. It is replete throughout Scripture. Brothers and sisters, this is what we want to set our aim upon. This is where we want to go. Thanksgiving is a comprehensive command. But that's not all it is. It's a continual challenge. It's a continual challenge. Now, I'm not saying that it's always a challenge. You, no doubt, have had good days. You, no doubt, have had good weeks, good months, good years, where everything seems to be going good. Your boss is good. Your job is good. Your health is good. Your mother-in-law is good. Your finances are good. Everything's good. You've had days. You've had weeks. You've had months. Everything's good. Then things change. Your boss isn't so good anymore. Your job is tedious. Your mother-in-law comes to visit. You're fine. I'm just kidding. Mother-in-laws are a tremendous blessing. Amen? Amen. There you go. Amen. Amen. But you've... Where things change. It's not so good anymore. What, what happened? And our immediate thought... When our health declines, when the finances fade, all of a sudden we find it a challenge to be thankful 
unto the Lord. How should we think about this? How should we think about our propensity to continually complain and gripe and murmur, at least in our hearts, instead of giving thanks to the Lord? Let me give you just a few thoughts that may be helpful. Number one, please note it on your outline. A lack of thanksgiving is a characteristic of the lost, not the redeemed. A lack of thanksgiving is a characteristic of the lost, not the redeemed. In Romans 1, as the wickedness, as the depravity of mankind is explained, a lack of thankfulness, a lack of gratitude unto God is specifically identified as a characteristic of those who reject God, of those who refuse to repent. Romans one twenty one says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The unbeliever does, does not thank God for the good things in his life. No, rather, he thanks himself, and he refuses to acknowledge that every good gift comes to him directly from God. Number two, note this on your outline. Unless we carefully guard our hearts and minds, our words can quickly become sinful. Our words can quickly become sinful because they reveal the fact that in our heart we are entertaining, complaining, and murmuring thoughts. We must train our hearts, train our minds. We must discipline ourselves to meditate and to think upon the gospel, to think upon the goodness and the glories of Christ. We must discipline ourselves to do, as Philippians 4 says, to think on that which is true, right, excellent, lovely, praise worthy because if we don't we will invariably drift into murmuring and complaining thoughts now if this were not so paul would never had to have written ephesians 5 4 ephesians 5 4 simply says let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving Right? He would never have to command that, except that it's so easy for us to, to say things that are inappropriate, to do crude joking, to do jesting, to, to say filthy things, complaining things, murmuring things that we ought not to say, but instead he commands us to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to continually give thanksgiving unto God. Number three, note this on your outline. When we complain, make no mistake about it, it is a sin against God. We need to call it what it is. Complaining, murmuring, it is a sin against God. It is a serious sin from which we ought to repent. When we complain, when we murmur, whether we realize it or not, we are speaking against the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Now, we might not think that we are. In fact, surely in our own hearts and minds, we're not thinking to ourselves, you know what I want to do today? I want to complain and to malign God in his goodness and to speak against his sovereignty. No, we don't, we don't think that, but at the root of it, at the heart of it, that is what we are doing. If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. There's just a couple verses that we're going to look at quickly here. When we complain, when, what we're really saying to God, is that God, you messed up. God, you messed up. This isn't the circumstance 
that I need. This isn't the situation that I should have, that I should be in right now. God, I need something different. And yes, I'm complaining to you and I'm murmuring to you, but God, I'm justified in doing so because this isn't good. This situation isn't good. You should have given me something different. And you didn't. And listen, I I, I get it. I do. Every one of us feels justified when we complain. Otherwise, you wouldn't be complaining. We all feel very justified when we complain. We feel like we have good reason to complain. I mean, those times that I give in to that sinful temptation and I complain, I feel perfectly justified. That person is a challenge. This circumstance stinks. I don't like any of this. God, I feel feel very justified as I as I complained I feel like I have a right to complain but friends there's a big big problem with that and James helps us to see this and identify this look at James 1 verse 2 these are familiar verses count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing instead of complaining james says that we are to count it all joy when we meet trials and hardships and difficulties of all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors because we know that these trials come to us through the sovereign hand of god They do. Every trial, every circumstance, it comes to us through the sovereign hand of God. And James says that we know, at least we ought to know, we should know that our good sovereign God has a plan and a purpose in this trial, in this difficulty. We can and should respond in joy because we know what God's purpose is. He means to sanctify us. He means to refine us and to shape us and to make us like Christ. And so we, we ought to be giving thanks. We can still be joyful in the midst of this, remembering the sovereignty and the plan of our God. One day when listening to Pastor Erwin Lutzer, he was talking about his own endeavor, his own struggle to make this a part of his life, to always be thankful for the trials and difficulties in his life. He said that when he's faced with a trial, he offers up to God a prayer, something like this. God, I thank you for this trial. I thank you for this hardship. I recognize that this is an opportunity that you have given me to make known my love, my allegiance, my devotion to you. Thank you for allowing me this moment, this challenge to learn more of what it means to die to self and to live for the glory of Christ. That is a good prayer. That in those times, in those challenges, we would recognize them for what they are. God, this is an opportunity for me to declare and to show my allegiance and my love to you by not complaining, but by trusting you, by entrusting myself to you. But that's not all that James tells us. Look at verse 16, James 1, 16. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James reminds us that 
everything good that you have in your life, you have as a result of God giving it to you. Every good gift, every good thing in your life that you have, you have as a direct result of God entrusting that to you, of God giving it to you. And so then what would it mean? What would it mean to look at the good gifts that God has entrusted to you and to say, God, you should have done better. You should have done better. I need a better car. I deserve a better house. I deserve better kids. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve more luxurious vacations. God, not good enough. Not good enough. What What does that mean to look at the sovereign good God who has entrusted you with so many gifts and to say, not good enough, I deserve better? Brothers and sisters, remember, be very careful with that word deserve. Amen? You know where I'm going with this. Because what is it we deserve as sinful human beings? We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be under the judgment of God. And instead, in Christ, we have been given life and grace, and forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of Christ's return, the promise of glory. God has been so good to us. Thanksgiving is a comprehensive command. It is a continual challenge because we battle against the flesh. We battle against our own heart and mind. But Thanksgiving is lastly a contagious comfort. It is a contagious comfort when we do give our thanksgiving and our gratitude to God. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Here we see Paul and Silas traveling, doing the Lord's work. They are out teaching the gospel. They are encouraging the brothers and sisters. They are making disciples. Eventually they travel to Philippi. Uh, There they are faithfully serving Christ and they are severely persecuted for it. There is a slave girl that they encounter in Philippi. She is demon-possessed. They cast out the demon from her, which sounds well and good, except that this demon-possessed girl was apparently making a lot of money for her owners as something of a fortune teller. They did not respond well to this. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the courts, before the magistrates to have them punished for casting a demon out of this slave girl. If you're in Acts chapter 16, look at verse 19. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had, a, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Beaten with rods, hit with many blows, thrown into the inner stinking prison where your feet are fastened in the stocks. And all God's people said, ouch, ouch, that sounds awful. 
These are not the circumstances that you want to find yourself in. You have never woken up in the morning and thought, inflicted with many blows, beaten with rods, feet in the stocks. Yes, Lord, that is your perfect goodwill for my life today. Right? We have never prayed this way. So how should we expect to find Paul and Silas in prison? What should we expect their attitude to be? Maybe more importantly, what would your attitude be if you were beaten and thrown into the inner prison? Are they complaining? Are they griping? Are they plotting their revenge? Are they praying all the imprecatory psalms against uh, the, the jailer and against the owners of this slave girl? No, here's what we see in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying. They were worshiping. They were singing unto the Lord. And through this, they are ministering to all the prisoners who are listening to their song. Please note this on your outline. They are able to see beyond their painful, hard circumstances to something greater. They're able to see beyond the pain, beyond the beatings, beyond the stalks to something greater. Instead of complaining, they were praising. Instead of wallowing in their pain and misery, they were thinking about Christ and the gospel and his goodness. Instead of cursing the jailer, they were ministering to their fellow prisoners. And this is very similar. This is very similar to what we see earlier in the book of Acts when the disciples experience intense persecution in Acts chapter 5. If you want to flip back a few uh, pages to Acts chapter 5, look at verse 40. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name Here they are, they're rejoicing as they leave after this beating because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. What are the greater things that the apostles were looking to, that Paul and Silas were looking to? What ought to motivate us continually and forever unto thanksgiving? In closing, I want to give you five quick things, and we're going to fly through these. Um, but I pray this will be helpful as we think about how in any and every circumstance we ought to be giving thanks unto God. Firstly, number one, in any and every circumstance we can be thankful for the gift of eternal life. In every circumstance, any circumstance, we can be thankful for the gift of eternal life. Eternal life obviously never ends, otherwise it wouldn't be eternal. Eternal life begins now. It does not ever stop, cease, or diminish in any way. Jesus says in John eight fifty one, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never see death. As believers, there's a sense in which we never die. We go from life here on planet Earth and then immediately into life in the fullness of God. We go from life to life. We go from life here to life in the glorious presence of God. And that is not death. True death is always characterized by separation. And we are never separated from God. We go from being in the presence of God here to being in the presence of God in glory 
we are never separated from God. We experience the presence, the fullness of the Holy Spirit now, and we experience presence and life in the, in the, in the glories of heaven. Then we go from life to life. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? And I ask that question to you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that in him you have been given the gift of eternal life? If so, that ought to be a motivation and to continual thanksgiving to God. Number two, in any and every circumstance, we can be thankful for the presence and love of Christ. The very last thing that Jesus says in the gospel according to Matthew is these words. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is good news. This is good news that Christ never leaves or abandons his children. This is good news that Christ dwells in us through his spirit, which he has given to us. You aren't alone. You are never alone. Christ is always in you and with you through his spirit. Paul would say it this way at, towards the end of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter the trial, no matter the circumstance, you cannot be separated from the love of God, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Number three. In any and every circumstance, we can go to God in prayer. We can go to God in prayer. Now, we don't often think of prayer as a gift that should continually motivate us to thanksgiving. Sadly, we usually tend to classify prayer as a duty, as a discipline, as something that that we ought to do, like making our bed and rolling up our socks and cleaning our room and not watching too much TV or playing too many video games. And it's a duty. And yet, it's something that in reality should excite our hearts and should thrill us to know that at any and every moment, you as a child of God can go before your Father who is in heaven. Have you blown it? Have you sinned? Have you made a mess of things? Are you in need of grace and mercy and wisdom? Go to the Lord. Do you remember Samson? After he had betrayed his Nazarite vow, as he was uh, in a Philistine prison with his head shaved and his eyes gouged out, as he is brought before the Philistines to entertain him, he calls upon the name of the Lord and God answers him. Have you made a mess of things? Go to the Lord. Learn from the example of Samson and of the great saints of old. Have you made a mess of things? Remember David. 
And the, the sin that he had committed and the consequences of that. And yet David wrote in Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. He tells us, and I appreciate this, we are told the point of the parable before we ever hear the parable. In Luke 18, we read that Jesus told this parable to his disciples so that they would always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart. That is God's desire for you. That is God's desire for us. That we would always be a people of prayer and that we would not lose heart. Um, pray because God is good. Pray because God does listen to the prayers of his children. Pray because God gives wisdom to those who ask. Pray because this glorifies the Father. Pray because prayer itself is a precious gift that has been given to you through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He has purchased that right for you to go before the Father and to give your expressions of supplications and thanksgivings and gratitude unto God. Because of what Christ has done, we can pray. It is a precious gift that should motivate us again and again unto thanksgiving. Number four on your outline, in any and every circumstance, we can rejoice in God's providence and protection. In any and every circumstance, we can and should rejoice in God's providence and protection. Psalm 34 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God is our refuge. God is our source of strength that we run to again and again and again. Over in Psalm 119, the psalmist would talk about his own experience of affliction and and he would write these words. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And then just three verses later, the psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Even in the midst of our affliction, we can trust the providence and the sovereignty of God, knowing that he is working in and through that to teach us what it means to follow him and to walk in fellowship with him. Obviously, Jesus understood the goodness of God, the the sovereignty of God. It was he who said in Matthew 6, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows. God always knows, and He is good, and He is working providentially for your good, for your sanctification. Lastly, number five, in any and every circumstance, we can be thankful that we are a part of the body of Christ. In any and every circumstance, we can be thankful that we are a part of the body of Christ. Turn in your Bibles real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Christ has blessed us in so many ways. He's given us his spirit. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He's given us the gift of prayer. And he has placed us within his body. He He has given us one another as brothers and sisters. Now, I realize that even as I say that, some of you perhaps look around the room and think, 
That's a gift I would like to return. That is, that is, some of these people in this room, they are the source of my affliction. They are the cause of my trouble. They, they are the reason why I don't sleep so good at nights anymore, right? And, and I, I, I understand that, but, but there is some truths that we need to consider as we think about what it means that we have been brought together into the body of Christ. If you're in 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 18. This is a fundamental truth, a fundamental principle that we need to understand about the body of Christ. It says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. It's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident that you are a part of the body of Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not an accident. It's true. You're, you're not an accident. We have been purposefully brought together and placed within his body. Now, if you're still in 1 Corinthians 12, jump down a couple verses to verse 21. Verse 21. So, what should we say and not say to one another? Well, notice this. The eye cannot say to the hand... I have no need of you. And we're again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. We're not allowed, says Scripture, to look at one another and say, irrelevant. Irrelevant! Get out! You don't matter! No, you can't do that! The head cannot say to the feet. The feet cannot say to the spleen. The spleen cannot say to the lung. I have no need of you. No, you do. You very much so do. Notice what Paul says next in verse 26. He says, if one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We should never see as irrelevant those that Christ died to save and to purchase, to bring into his body. The fact is we are helped by one another, even in our weaknesses, even in our struggles. We are helped by one another. We are challenged to grow by one another. We are cared for by one another. We are comforted and encouraged by one another. We are to use our gifts and our abilities to edify one another. And we do this, says Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We keep at it. We keep at it. We continue serving. We continue loving. We continue challenging and edifying until we are all perfectly mature in Christ, which will not happen this side of glory. So it means we never give up. We continue to strive together, to love, to care, to serve until we all reach that day that we are like Christ. In any and every circumstance, we ought to be thankful for the gift of eternal life, the presence and love of Christ, the gift of prayer, God's providence and protection, and the fact that we are a part of his body. Now, in closing, I realize we are out of time and we will sing and we will go eat in just a moment. But in closing, I just want to remind you of just one thing. King David, at the very end of his life, shortly before he died, addressed the people. I put these verses at the bottom of your outline there in First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. And the point that, that I simply want to make is this. God's people have always been reminded and have been challenged to be a thankful people. Let us close by considering the words of King David. 
It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are indeed worthy, worthy of our praise, worthy of our love, worthy of our continual thanksgiving. You have been so good to us in so many ways. Father, help us, challenge us, work in us so that we may be a people who continually offers praise and thanksgiving to you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.